For those listening to the second session online, we want to say to you, this is going to be life transforming. This is going to activate in you a new passion and effectiveness and an increased capacity and competency to consistently convert people to Jesus Christ. Yes. And so we said that because of two things, uh, evangelism that used to 120 years ago, 80% of the converts would stay faithful for the entire life and involved in a local church. And it was a time when the world was not friendly to the church. There was a hostility to it. Charles Darwin's books were being written. There was confusion. There was darkness in the nations. And there was unbelief in the pulpits. There were many universalists in the pulpits at the time. I don't know if you know that. Many universalists going back over 120 years. And there was total unbelief. There were very little miracles. And there was very little genuine conversion of people through conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And in that time, men and women, I could name their names. It's a long list. Stood up as cu- with courage and were hated. But when they preached, the lost got saved by the droves. The lost gladly received Christ, deeply convicted of sin. And because the, uh, uh, up to uh, from 120 years ago, the church drifted to a secular humanistic idea of what the condition of lost people is. And they began to see people as only slightly lost. Maybe just a little bit. That, that they had a God-shaped vacuum. And if we could just show them the incentive, you know, show them Jesus, they would all just come into the kingdom. And we found out that 120 years of preaching that kind of fraudulent means to get people to come to Christ has produced hundreds of millions of fraudulent counterfeit converts who have not had their hearts circumcised. They came in for a Jesus guru who would give them peace, give them good self-image, and as soon as they hit the hard times or difficulties or persecution, they just left Christianity and they just left the church. The reason is they're going to hell. They've never been born again. And now they're cynical and they think they've tried Christianity. And so when we use the wrong means to get someone to Christ, we are immunizing them to get saved against salvation. And we've got to get this right. We have to get this right. Can you say amen? So if a doctor diagnoses the condition of a patient who's got brain cancer wrong, and they offer Panadol as the solution, that they've sentenced that man or woman to death. If we give people just uh, selfish incentives to come to Jesus, we are giving them a Panadol religion. And we saw last night how lost people are. We saw it. No one seeks God. We saw that, that enmity against God. Amen. So, so I want to show you quickly before I show you the secret, what the hook is. So signs and wonders is the bait. It's not the hook that catches people. Amen. Intellectual apologetics to give the scientific evidence for the Bible is not the hook. It's attractive. It just means that people now believe there is a God, but they don't know him and they don't know why they need to know him. And good works and serving and loving people out there is great as well, but it's not the hook. It's what makes us look attractive so that we can at least draw attention until we can show them why they need Jesus Christ. Okay, can you say amen? And so when, when that hook is used, when that secret is used, sinners are cut to their heart by the Holy Spirit, and they get truly converted in Christ. Remember this, I don't have to qualify again, 
The believer in Christ is never under the law ever again. Say amen. amen. A believer in Christ who's truly born again never needs to fear the judgment of God. Say amen. amen. God took an oath in Isaiah 54. I will never be angry with you again. I will never condemn you again. I will never withdraw my love from you again. And I will never withdraw my covenant of peace with you again. Because of in Christ, there is an oath God swore that He will never condemn His people again. If you're in Christ, you are under grace 100% of the time, and you are safe and you are secure. That is if you are in Christ. But if you're out of Christ, you have no promise or guarantee where you're going to spend eternity until you get the secret, get the hook, and get born again. Amen. So it's grace to those who are in Christ and law to those who are unsaved. And I want to show you that when under the anointing, that's preached to unbelievers, what happens to them. So what we just have that scripture, Acts chapter 2, please. So yes, the first New Testament. This is the first grace covenant preached in the Bible. There's so much Holy Spirit on Peter. And the eleven as they're standing up to preach. And uh, if you read the message, you'll see the secret. Peter put the secret into the words he said before here. I want you to see the results though. It is far different to modern crusades and evangelism. Okay. Peter's closing his message, although he's not finished. And he says then, Acts chapter 2 verse 36. Therefore let all Israel, not some of Israel... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they heard all of what he said just before that. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Say cut to the heart. That doesn't sound like someone saying, if you come to Jesus, he'll give you a, a, a nice self-image. That doesn't cut you to the heart. When they heard this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. Say, warned them. Preaching should warn people about being in, entangled in the corrupted wisdom of the age we're living in. You do not relate to alcoholics by becoming an alcoholic. You do not relate to people addicted to pornography by being addicted to pornography. Jesus didn't do any of that stuff and he related well to sinners. And he was without sin. With many other words, he warned. Come on, let's warn the church. Get out of the stuff, man. Get out of the adultery. Get out of that weird stuff, man. Let me ask you this question. If something is wrong under law, is it therefore right under grace? Yeah. If, if, if thou shalt not commit adultery is the law, hey, I'm under grace. I can run around until Glenda kills me. I can just run around and have other women. No, everything that's wrong under the law is wrong under grace. Is tithing right under the law? Yes. 
Is it wrong under grace? It's amazing how people haven't thought this through. You did. You said loudly straight away. No. But some people just think, hey, I'm no longer under the law. I'm in grace. And what was wrong there is right now. Hallelujah. It's okay to lie. No. The law tries to make you do the right thing for the wrong reason. But the grace enables you to do the right thing with the right motives. And there's a whole message I can preach on that. But hey, grace empowers us to say no to ungodliness. The church needs to live clean and pure and free and disentangled. Amen. There's some politicians right up there at the high level that they're like people that cannot be bought with bribes. They are the people we need to be praying for. Now, I'm, I pray that corruption and everything that's been stealing hundreds of billions of rands is going to come out in the investigation and people go to jail. Amen. The church needs to be a blameless. We need to be above reproach. We don't need to be the idiots. We don't need to be the men always pulling our flies down. Lie away. You're not coming. Let's, let's make a stand for the kingdom of heaven. And if we fall, we fall into the arms of grace and we can be restored. Thank God for that. Amen. But if I know I've got a big safety net under me and I'm a trapeze artist, I don't go, hey, I'm just going to have fun. I'm just going to dive off the trapeze into the safety net. Hey, the people have come to watch you do triple somersaults and catch that thing and swing around and do something great. They haven't seen you just deliberately diving into the nets. Safety, grace is a safety net. But hopefully you never have to fall into it. Come on, say amen. Peter warning these new converts and he pleaded with them and he warned them and pleaded with them save yourself from this corrupt generation come on christians let's be saved from a corrupt generation that is doing bizarre things you would never believe that people would be teaching such weird morality we've got 26 gender identities in america and canada They don't even want to give, they want to forbid you to give your baby a name because if it's born a male, you should not give it a male name or female name because it might decide somewhere what it wants to be. So this is, this is just an abomination against the integrity of who God is. He made a male and a woman in the garden. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added. Say added. They were added to their number. Everyone say it. That day. So it wasn't weeks or months of follow up. When someone is born again. When someone is cut to the heart. When the secret is used. They are cut to the heart. They say what must we do to be saved? They say what must we do to be prosperous or have peace? Then what must we do to be saved from judgment? No follow up. You only have to follow up counterfeit converts. Low maintenance when you preach the secret. 3,000 were at, Should have got a clap there, hey? 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted. Say, devoted. I'm hopelessly devoted to you. They were devoted. This is a beautiful love with the new converts. The day they say they devoted. They didn't need anyone to invite them to the prayer meeting. Now I'm too busy. These guys are busy too. They had lots of children, lots more than we have today. They didn't have contraception. 
They didn't have cars. They didn't have Twitter. These people are also very busy. Let me just lie. We are always so busy in the big cities. Yeah, Hong Kong's a big city. Busy. The people are devoted in our church. They're devoted. They just got saved. And on the same day, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. First day. Hallelujah. Everyone was filled. Say everyone. That's 3,120. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Notice it was the preach that got them saved, not the signs and the wonders. Everyone was filled with awe. But because the modern church is using the wrong leverage, instead of desperate sinners repenting and knocking on mercy's door, pleading for salvation from a certain eternal judgment that we all deserve, modern evangelical Christianity incorrectly paints a picture of a little God, little G, Jesus, inviting sinners to, to keep their sin and be happy. This type of in invitation gives sinners the idea that they, that, that they would be doing Jesus a favor if they respond. The gospel is not an invitation because invitations can be politely turned down without fear of consequences. The New Testament commands all men everywhere to repent for God has set a day of judgment. Let's go to Acts 17. Okay, let me come to this side because I'm ignoring these people here. Let's read it out together loudly. One, two, three, go. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. God has commanded all men everywhere, the King of Kings, the creator of the heaven and earth is speaking to earth and saying, I, my goodness is holding back judgment, which is a righteous judgment, and I'm giving people time to repent, but we're not giving you soppy little invites to please you. We are literally, God is already commanding all men everywhere to repent. This is not an invitation. This is a command for earth to acknowledge the creator of the heavens and the earth and his son whom he sent. Amen's there again. Hey, woman. Okay, so let's look for the secret. What is the secret? Let's look to Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20. I just want to say this again, so as people missed last night. When people say, how can a God of love send people to hell? They are not asking a question. They are making an accusation. They have put God on the dock and the earth has become the jury and we are deciding whether to judge God of being guilty of injustice. And we are coming from our perverted, distorted conceptions of things, our finite limitations, and we're talking to an uncreated being about what love is. And we can say this with clarity. Any person who goes to hell absolutely has rebelled against God, has been in unbelief, and has flaunted the arrogance against the most beautiful, loving Father. 
He loves him and doesn't want him to go to hell. And there's only one innocent person, and that's Jesus. Only one innocent person could make a claim, what happened to me was unjust. Because he had never sinned, but he took all the sin of all of us on him, and he was punished in our place. And he said, it is finished. He's the only one that could say, this is not fair. But he didn't say it's not fair. He said, it is finished. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and the scorn of sinful men. He abused him. He is the only one that could say, Father, this is unfair. This is unjust. But no one else can say, God is unjust. God so loved this world that he sent his only begotten son to justify every person. And we reject such mercy. We deserve a thorough investigation from the high court of heaven's integrity and justice to determine what happens to us. But if we simply bow our knee and receive Jesus Christ as Lord, we are elevated to co-equal heirs with Christ and heirs of God, sons and daughters of the Most High, His beloved. God wants all men to Say, God is not bullying people into submission. He's not threatening people into submission. He sent redemption in Christ perfectly. Amen. So we'll, we'll just take that a little further. So let's read this in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that, let's read it out loudly together. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. All right? So I hear grace people say, you know, the law was never meant for uh, unsaved Gentiles anyway. It was only meant for Israel. I don't know which Bible they're reading. This book says that the law holds the entire world accountable to God. Every person in South Africa is actually accountable to the laws of this land. I don't care if you come in as an immigrant, you, you can't say, hey, I'm not accountable. No, you're accountable to the law. Now, I wish South Africa would actually follow through on some of those things. But, but I promise you, our God does. Because he's infinitely integrous. The whole law is held accountable to God. The whole world is held accountable to God by the law of God. If you look at the spirituality of the law, it means even if you look at someone else with lust, you have committed adultery. The sin of intent is as nearly as bad as the actual offense. If you're planning to blow up the civic center here, and just before you do it, they catch you with all the bombs. And some radical Islamic left or whatever right thing. And, you're, and they catch you. You are going to jail for a very long time. I didn't blow the building up. No, but you were planning. Just to look at someone with a lust, have sex with them, is not your wife or husband. That Jesus said that's equal to adultery and that's a death sentence. Just to hate someone without cause is equal to murder and that's a death sentence. And if we go through the spirituality of the law, you will see that every one of us are guilty of breaking all ten over and over again. And in a well-run country, 
you only have to break one law before the police arrive. Well, we have broken all of the spirituality of the law. All of it. We have not loved God with all our hearts, all our minds, all our souls, and all of our strength. We have not loved our labors as we love ourselves. And there's a big emphasis today, you know, you must really, really love yourself because then you can love your neighbors. Probably true. But friends, I don't think that was in the mind. God just knew we're so narcissistically obsessed with ourselves that if we just give a little bit of that to our neighbors, they'd feel really loved. If I just love myself, I love everyone else around me. I don't know about that. The law holds the entire world to account. The law is investigating and is recording every moment that the spirituality of the law is being broken by members of the planet who are in rebellion to God. Now, you may not know that, but that's in the Bible. Now, if someone is not a believer of the Bible, I cannot persuade you because I am speaking from the Word of God. And it said the whole world, not just Adolf Hitler, every human being ever walked on this planet is being held accountable before God by the law. The law is investigating you with exactitudes. Perfect. High court of heaven's integrity of exactitudes. Now, even some of you sitting here who know you're saved and you believe in the grace of God and you know you are righteous in His eyes forever and He'll never put the law over you. And that's the truth. Even as I say this, some of you feel that little twinge of conscience. Oh my God. I feel like, oh my God. Listen, if you're in Christ, you are safe permanently from all of this. But friends, what we've done is we put the law on the church and given grace to the lost. Said, Father just loves you. He loves you unconditionally. Come on in. Get saved. Just Jesus loves you like you are. Okay. They come to church and then they come under law. Gee, I want to go out there and be a sinner again because God loves me better when I'm out there. So we got it all messed up, friends. It's law for those out there. They've been held accountable to God. But if you're in Christ, not just a counterfeit conversion, counterfeit conversion that's been taught the Bible and can quote it like the devil can, and sitting in church and masquerading, as someone fraudulent, but you're not really born again. If you're born again, your heart is circumcised, and decade after decade, you will be showing 60, 30, 100 fold fruit. Amen. But God is holding everyone on the whole world accountable to the law, and so every mouth may be silenced. What does that mean? We are such an opinionated generation. We think we can argue ourselves out of anything by human rights. We live in an egalitarian society and we've reduced God down to a little fairy. And we think we're going to get to heaven and when God starts investigating us by the law, we're going to say, I just want to accuse you. I don't think this is fair. How can you, a loving God, say this to me? How dare you? He'll just say, Jesus and the cross. And you rejected him. And every mouth will be silent. There'll be no arrogant people. Hey! The law holds the entire world to account. With absolute, infinite investigation, it scrutinizes every second of every person's life continually on this planet, holds them to account, and it cannot make you righteous 
It is simply making you conscious of your sinfulness. Why? Let me ask you a question. Can you get saved without repenting? Say it a bit louder. Can you get saved without repenting? All right. Can you with integrity repent unless you are deeply convicted of sin? Now, you can't repent with integrity and make a little play-play repentance in the front chair if you're not deeply convicted of your sin. If we say, look, if you come to Jesus, he'll give you peace. He'll love you. And he'll just be so good to you. You know, and, 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 and people come. They don't feel any consciousness of sin. They don't feel like they're wrong. They just say, yeah, Jesus. Okay, say, say with me, I repent of my sin. They just say it. But they're not convicted. And they're not repenting. And they're still locked up on the law and they haven't put faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now look, I know it's pretty heavy. It's getting like heavy in this place here. But, but you know, about when I was in Australia about 15, 16 years ago, I got tired of hearing universalists. So I spent three days studying the scriptures on judgment and hell and reading the Greek and the Hebrew days and days and days and days. And I sweated under my armpits the most stinky smell you can imagine. Adrenaline sweat gone rotten because I realized how serious this is. And I didn't feel happy. I felt depressed. I wanted to believe in universalism. I wanted to believe that no sinners would be lost. But I thought, my father... How can I tamper with sacred scripture? Because universalists are not using scripture in context. They are using emotional arguments. If you listen carefully, there's very little scripture in. They use emotional arguments based on human reasonings. And I tell you, I got so depressed. I couldn't preach that. I thought that would make the whole church depressed. So... My son Ryan says, Dad, you know, the main reason why most Christians today don't really, really believe there's a hell is because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And no one's talking about hell, so no one's got faith. And so no one's alarmed by where people are going. So it's the law that makes us conscious of sin. So let's read. Now, this is it. Here's the secret. Galatians chapter 3. Let's get into this one, Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to 25. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian. Let me say most translations, and if you read the Greek, it says, so the law was put in charge. Guardian can mean put in charge or can be called a schoolmaster. If you read through the scripture, so I'm not going to use that word guardian right there, that's the NIV, but most, uh, but most scriptures will use the word guardian, I mean, will use the word put in charge, or it will use the word schoolmaster. Guardian's okay. So the law was, at, the law was put in charge until Christ came. I want, I want you to know that the scripture I wanted up there today, I discussed last night, the scriptures, most of the translations say, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That language is a little bit vague there. But the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, 
that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So the law is our guardian. It's our schoolmaster. It is the one that's put in charge to lead us to Christ. It's there to make us know of our consciousness of sin, our mouths are silenced, the whole world is held to account, and we have no excuse before a living God. Can you say amen? And once a person realizes, my God, this is what the law says, I'm held accountable by the law, and they begin to realize from the depth of their heart, I have no hope of standing righteous before God in my own ability or own good works. That's when they can come to Christ. The law must be put in charge so people can be led to Christ. But if the law is not put in charge, if the law doesn't hold people to account and silence their arrogant arguments, if the law doesn't do that, they cannot see any value of their need of Christ. So this is what John Wesley did as the preachers for the lost people. John Wesley Wesley was a preacher of righteousness. He would exalt the holiness of God, the law of God, the justice of God, the wisdom of His requirements, and the justice of His wrath. Then he would turn to the sinners and tell them of the enormity of their crimes, their open rebellion, their treason, and their anarchy. The power of God would descend so mightily that it is reliably reported on one occasion when the people dispensed, there were still 1,800 people lying on the ground, completely unconscious, because they had a revelation of the holiness of God. And in the light of that, they had seen the enormity of their own sin. Literally, John Wesley's preaching in the 1600s saved England from a blood bath. Across the channel in France, the French Revolution was taking place. It was a period of history where Christianity was being absolutely rejected and hated. It was an industrial revolution. And the French rose up against the uh, aristocracy and the bourgeoisie. And they were guillotining all the top intelligentsia and killed even the queen and the king. They went mad. And Britain was about to erupt with the same violence. But John Wesley and Charles Wesley and many others began to stand and preach the law of God to the sinners. So they were cut to the heart. Some fainted under the awe of this God. When they woke up, the police would go and check those unconscious and smell their breasts, see if there's any alcohol. There was no alcohol. And they were lying around, fainted all over. They say, I don't worry. They got John Wesley's disease. And when they wake up, we will not have anything more to do with them because they will stop being criminals. Paul got saved the same way. He fell to the ground when Jesus appeared to him. South Africa's crime rate could go down with this true secret. Because I can tell you, as you'll read in John 16, the Holy Spirit gets behind this when you're preaching to the lost. If you're preaching to the saved, the Holy Spirit's not going to empower you to preach the law to the saved. Because He canceled the law for the saved at the cross. But, but as grace people, people have got, I've never been confused about this, by the way. 
But I've seen a lot of grace people think, oh, we, the gospel means we just preach to them what we believe as believers. No, you've got to bring the Lord to them before they see their need for this glorious grace. And I'm going to give you a very practical way in this session or in the next session on how you do that. It's so easy to do it. So you don't have to be clever or, or whatever, because I can do it. Okay. Spurgeon, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, my most famous preacher. I love him as a preacher. I've read all his sermons, whatever. But he's the greatest grace preacher, I think, the most articulate, eloquent man. Preached grace, beautiful grace to the believers. And listen to what he says about the unbelievers. Spurgeon says, lower the law and you dim the light by which men, by which, sorry, lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain. For it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its ablest auxiliary, its most powerful weapon, which you have taken away. You have taken away the schoolmaster or the one that should be in charge. You have taken away the guardian that brings men to Christ. They will never accept grace. So they tremble before the just and the holy law. Therefore, the law serves as the most necessary and blessed purpose and must not be removed from its place. Amen. Can say amen to that. The greatest grace preacher in the world said this, and he's preaching to the lost. What will you do when the law of God comes in terror? When the trumpet of the archangel shall tear you from your grave and the book shall be opened and all your sin and shame shall be punished. Can you stand against an angry law on that day? Let me just read you something quickly. Are you still with me? Yeah, some just clear revelation about the nature of God because we've got to get this fairy God out of the way. We must remember that justice is not something outside of God to which God must conform to. Nothing, nothing ever requires God to, to do anything. If you have a little God who is required to do anything from something on the outside, then you have a weak God. He must yield himself to the pressure from the outside. Then that makes justice bigger than God. All God's reasons for doing something are inside God. Neither should you think that God has justice. No, justice is something that God is. Neither must we think of God as composed of parts, working harmoniously. We must think of God as one. God's attributes never quarrel with each other. Man is composed of parts. Part of him may war with another part of him. His sense of justice may war with his sense of mercy. I've read how sometimes judges turn pale and clutch the bench when they sentence a man to death. External justice stands there as a law and says the man must die. But mercy inside contradicts. But God has, has no parts. He is one. 
And everything that God does harmonizes with everything else God does perfectly. Because there are no parts of there are no parts to get out of joint. And all God's attributes are one and together. And no matter how nice and refined and safe a sinner may feel, when God confronts them with God's justice and confronts them, their moral situation, He finds that person guilty and there is a sentence of death. It's a strange curiosity that all people outside of Christ under this, under this sentence can be so jolly. When God in His justice sentences a sinner to judgment, His mercy does not quarrel. He does not quarrel with His kindness. He does not quarrel with His compassion or pity or love. No, all of God's attributes can concur and everything infinitely and all God's intelligence concurs with the sentence of judgment. But oh, the wonder of salvation when Christ who is God went to the cross and died there in infinite agony, not finite agony, in because everything God does, He does with everything He is. And Christ who is God went to the cross and He died there in infinite agony, in infinite suffering. God suffered more than those in hell. He suffered all that they could suffer in hell. He suffered with the agony of God for everything that God does. He does with all that He is infinitely. When Christ suffered for you, my friend, He suffered to change your moral situation before God. When God looks upon a sinner who still loves his sin and rejects salvation, justice sentenced him to die. When God looks upon someone who has accepted the salvation of Christ, justice sentence him to live. And God is just in doing such things. When God justifies a sinner who repents, everything in God is on that person's side. All the attributes of God are on their side. It isn't that mercy is now on their side and justice is trying to sentence them. No, it is mercy and justice that is saving them and celebrating what is happening to them? Because the wonder of the cross has changed our moral standing before God. Now we are forever the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If there is a sinner that's unrepentant, not saved, there's only one answer. All of God, all of God, His mercy, love, compassion, justice, all of God, all of God says, death and hell. And all of heaven cannot pull that man up. Someone is a rebellion, refuses to repent, rejects salvation. Then all of God says, death and hell. And all of heaven cannot pull that man up. But if he repents and calls out for salvation and humility and forgiveness and takes the infinite agony of God on the cross, all of God, everything of God, looks on that man and says, Life! And all of hell cannot drag that man down because of the wonder of the awesome nature and being of Almighty God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. Are you saved? Are you just? Are you under the ju justice of the law? Or are you under the justice of the cross? Have you passed from death to life? Let me say it again. Are you saved? 
Are you under the justice of the law? Or are you under the justice of the cross? Have you passed from death to life? Everyone in this room and everyone in South Africa. Because if you have been saved, the fruit of your life should dramatically reveal it. You see how dangerous it is to preach this flimsy, silly, little incentive thing when we know the condition from Scripture of where sinners are really at. Come on, can you say amen? Friend told me this once. He's standing in New Zealand, and there was a dark green, beautiful hillside, dark green grass, and on it was standing white sheep. And he thought the sheep looked so beautifully white, and he was so amazed at how clean they looked. And then suddenly it began to snow quite heavily and quickly, and all the background of the of the green hill turned to startling, beautiful, absolute white. And he looked at the sheep and suddenly he could see they were so dirty. The sheep are dirty. There was all dirty marks all over them. And he suddenly realized a different background has completely exposed what's really there. And that's what the law does. Because when we stand on the green as dirty sheep, no one, we don't really see how dirty we are. We, we, I've got some faults, I do some bad things, but we don't understand because when the background is just this cushy, 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 cue, God loves me, God loves you, of course everyone's going to go to heaven. God could never sentence anyone to hell. He could never be so unjust. We stand on that green thing. What we do is we do not compare ourselves to the spirituality of the Lord. The human race doesn't do that. What we do is we compare ourselves to others. Well, you know, I've got some faults, but I'm not so bad. I'm quite good, you know. I give to charities a lot, you know. I'm sure God's going to let me into heaven for that. And, you know, I'm not like Hitler. I didn't kill six million Jews. And I'm not like that one. I'm not like this one. This is what religion does, and the church is full of these people. They stink. They really are ugly in their attitude. They're critical. They're judgmental. They feel they're superior because they think they got their spirituality from, they think they got their righteousness from the law. But they don't know the law. Because when the true spirituality of the law comes, they won't be able to open their mouth. Their mouths will be silent. And they will be held accountable to God. They will realize God's investigated every second, every moment of my life, hidden or open, has been seen and recorded. And if we reject Jesus Christ, we have rejected all the works of the cross and we will be sentenced by the full exactitudes of the law. Because there's one sin that Jesus could not die for. And that's unbelief in Him. And if you're in unbelief in Him, not one of the benefits of the cross are available for you. Did you follow that? There's one sin He didn't, He could not die for. Unbelief in Him. And if someone goes into eternity in unbelief in Christ, you get none of the benefits of the finished work of the cross, but you're sentenced to the full extent of the law. Now, this is self-evident throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. I do not know why it has not been preached. All right. Are you still with me, or are you, are you just think, man, I, this, this guy is mad. You must see when I preach this, I preach it with boldness, I preach it under the anointing in certain places where it's evangelism, 
And I tell you, the lost come running out and they shake and they get solidly saved. 